Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're happy to see you here tonight um, for this um, edition of our Writers Live series and our special guest, Jabari Asim. Um, I want to say that the Writers Live series are sponsored in part by a generous grant from PNC Bank, and we thank them for their support. Uh, I invited Professor Lester Spence from Johns Hopkins University to come here tonight and introduce his good friend Jabari Asim. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to Lester. Um, thank you, Judy. I'm um, no, so today is what June seventeenth. So it's a a month plus a few weeks since you know since the uprising. Um, one of the things that we're fighting for. Now, what we're really fighting for is a better Baltimore. And what does a better Baltimore mean? What does a better Baltimore look like? And what a, what a better Baltimore means to me is a Baltimore that has uh, a firm commitment to the public good, a, full, a firm commitment to kind of the commons. And to that extent, an institution like the Enoch Pratt Library is a very fundamental part of that mission. Um, but what it also means, given Baltimore's history, given Baltimore's demographic, is a certain type of commitment to black life, um, to black intellectual life, um, to black life in all of its random and trifling forms. Example of a random and trifling form of black life. All the black folk are sitting all the way in the back. <laughs> no, I'm just talking. Um, although it's kind of kind of true. Uh, but it's a, it's a commitment to black life. So I see bringing writers like Jabari here consistently as part of an effort to ensure that an institution that black Baltimoreans commit to with their tax money, with their feet, with their labor in all types of ways, actually that that the institution reflects them. And then in so doing that, it ends up reflecting Baltimore and ends up reflecting the world, right? So I just wanted to, I made a number of public statements about what happened, but I actually haven't made a number of public statements in institutions like this to uh, Baltimore folks. I just wanted to get that out there. Um, Jabari Asim is currently an associate professor of creative writing at Emerson College in uh, Massachusetts, as well as the editor-in-chief of the Crisis Magazine, the chief publication of the NAACP, founded by W.E.B. Du Bois over 100 years ago. In 2009, he received a Guggenheim grant awarded annually to those who have demonstrated exceptional capacity for productive scholarship or exceptional creative ability in the arts. With Only the Strong, the book Jabari is going to talk about today. He's introduced a character in Guts Tolliver as interesting as Easy Rollins, Fearless Jones, or Leonid McGill. And in Gateway City, uh, what's a kind of a, a kind of a, it's loosely based on St. Louis where, where Jabari grew up, we see a landscape as dense and rich with storytelling possibilities as Walter Mosley's Los Angeles. 
Um, rather than simply list the books um, Jabari's written, I thought I'd take a slightly different approach. I'm going to read you the first sentences of his most recent books and then end with the first sentence of Only the Strong. Like any boy, Booker longed to play, run, and jump beneath the blue skies and bright sun. The summer of 67 was hot and foreboding. When I visited my mother last May, much of her living room had been converted into what I half-jokingly called a Barack Obama shrine. Guts Tolliver hadn't killed a man in two years. As intimated by these sentences, it seems done far more than simply written 12 books and edited one other, a feat in and of itself, he's done the hard work necessary to master four very different genres of literature. Children's books, young adult fiction, nonfiction, and with a taste of honey and only the strong, fiction. This at the same time he's running the crisis, this at the same time he's uh, teaching creative writing at Emerson, and most important of all, this as he's being husband, father of five, and now grandfather. Further, while he's been incredibly disciplined and focused, he's always been incredibly gracious, humble, and loving. I've been blessed to have a number of powerful folk in my life, but particularly for the writers among them, Jabari may be the best role model I know. It is my honor and pleasure to introduce him to you. Jabari Asim. Well, that was, I don't even know if I can follow that introduction. That was uh, a, a little bit about Professor Lester Kenyatta Spence. I met him when we were both toiling in the, the real St. Louis, and we later became neighbors many years later uh, here in Baltimore when I lived here for three years. So we, we have a, a history that I appreciate, uh, and he's done some terrific work, uh, notably the book Stare, Stare in the Darkness or Stare into the Darkness. Stare in the Darkness, uh, an important book that Lester wrote and published a few years ago. Uh, and if you haven't had the opportunity to examine it, I encourage you to do so. A word of thanks also to Judy Cooper and the Enoch Pratt Library. Um, libraries have been particularly kind to me, and I'm grateful for that, but none has been more kind uh, than the Pratt. I have had the pleasure of visiting here with every book that I've published, so I'm, I'm really comfortable here. Happy to be here. And, and I can say with some experience um, in my 15 years as a published writer that there, there are actually few cultural institutions as diverse and wide-ranging in their programming as the Pratt. Uh, sometimes libraries contact me. Sometimes I contact libraries. And some of those libraries are, I will diplomatically say, astonishingly unlike the Pratt. Uh, so, so I'm uh, I'm really happy to be here about this book. Only the strong. Um, it sort of covers similar territory that uh, my other fiction book, A Taste of Honey, did. I'm I'm trying to tell the story of a community decade by decade, much as uh, August Wilson did, and his plays. One of my influences. So, A Taste of Honey starts uh, in the '60s. Um, Only the strong is set in the '70s, and the next one will be. In the 80s, I'm focusing on a number of characters in this book, but uh, in my reading, I'll focus on three in particular. Uh, Guts Tolliver 
whom, whom Lester mentioned, plays a minor role in A Taste of Honey. And when I was writing A Taste of Honey, um, I got more and more interested in Guts, and I knew I wanted to write more about him. So I knew that when I revisited uh, Gateway City, that Guts would play a major role. So I had him from the beginning. The other characters came later. Uh, there's a character named Ananias Good, uh, who is a crime boss. Um, who runs much of the the black underworld in Gateway City, a character very loosely based on my own grandfather, uh, who was the the syndicate king in St. Louis uh, before the lottery legalized what he had been doing all along and and forced him and other people uh, out of that business. So there's Ananias Good. Ananias Good is having an affair. He's married. His wife is ill. He's having an affair with a prominent pediatrician named Dr. Noel, who's... um, sort of a pillar of civic virtue, one of the best-known black people in the community, and she's sort of the embodiment of the politics of black respectability, right? So part of her struggle has been finding a respectable partner who, who is her equal. Uh, she has not been successful with that. She, she and Ananias Good have an undeniable chemistry uh, that they struggle with uh, and which complicates both their lives. So I'm going to read a few passages. Uh, shouldn't take more than about 20 minutes, but I hope that they will sort of make clear uh, Guts Tolliver's role in this community, Dr. Noel's role in this community, and Ananias Good's role in the community. And after that, if we have time, we can uh, do a few questions or comments. So this first section, um, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, Guts had a, a change of heart. He had been a leg breaker, a bone crusher, a killer, and he is, he's 35 years old. He's sort of taking account of his life, and he's thinking maybe it's possible for him to live a quieter kind of life. Um, so he runs a taxi stand. That's what he does for a living. In exchange, he solves problems for people, um, including his former boss, Ananias Good. So this is just a little bit about the taxi stand where he now works. Oh, and I should mention that Guts is in a relationship with a woman named Pearl, um, and she'll be referred to in this passage. Guts was not much for long phone conversations. Face to face, he could chew the fat with the best of them, even if he spent every exchange casually taking in everything going on all around him, ever alert to dangers. But the phone, disembodied voices disturbed him in a way he couldn't quite nail down. So even though he was happy to hear from Pearl how her day was going, her lunch plans, how she couldn't wait to spoon more fresh baked banana pudding into his waiting mouth, He was nonetheless relieved later in the day to put down the receiver and step into the main room where the men of the cab stand had congregated for lunch. Of the three men present, only one had an actual connection to the stand. Cherry, sporting an afro less out of style considerations than just natural hirsute exuberance, was the in-house mechanic. Good-natured, sleepy-eyed, and skillful, he was adept at hanging around and shooting the breeze, ears attuned to the bell that rang when a cab pulled onto the lot. Shadrach, long retired, had made the cab stand his second home. Wearing his customary straw fedora with the gold band, he sat with Cherry at one of the three card tables that served as workplace furniture for the gateway fleet. The two men attacked a platter of ribs while Oliver paced nearby and read from the paper. Oliver worked at the bowling alley across the street, nervous, bespectacled, of indeterminate age. He took so many coffee breaks that it remained a mystery how he managed to keep himself employed. Guts crossed the threshold and took everything in with a quick, sweeping glance. The plate glass window gleamed adjacent to the front door, through which the lot's two gas pumps beckoned. Across the room, 
A doorway led to the service bay where cabs could be hoisted and repaired. Behind Cherry and Shadrack, another door led to a restroom flanked by a water fountain and an ancient soda machine. On the wall above the fountain was a framed ebony magazine cover photo of Nichelle Nichols. Clad in her skin-tight Star Trek uniform, the curvy communications officer of the Starship Enterprise appeared to be climbing from a hatch as she stared into the camera, bright eyes ablaze. Those eyes alone would have possessed the power to command every man's gaze if not for the presence of her fabulous right thigh, deliciously exposed as she mounted a rung. Over her left shoulder, a headline announced, Scientists Discover Secret of Skin Color. Guts sat where he could keep his eyes on the door. The chair creaked and groaned under his bulk. Urban renewal, Oliver was saying. We know what that is. Nigger removal. See, the reason they haven't built up Franklin Square is because they want to take it back. One day the north side will be just as white as it was before all you burrheads came up from Dixie. Listening, Guts remembered the buzz of commerce that once swirled around Franklin Square. The convergence of three streets formed a plaza that attracted strollers, people watchers, and shoppers eager to spend their wages at the mom-and-pop grocery, the record shop, the soul food joint, and the clothing boutiques. During the hot, tense summers of recent years, the plaza had served as a rallying place for the politically awakened residents of North Gateway. Poets recited odes to the people. Drummers pounded congas. Self-appointed revolutionaries handed out pamphlets calling for armed rebellion. And would-be orators rang the rooftops with phrases cribbed from Malcolm X and H. Rap Brown. The buildings all burned in the furious hours following King's death in Memphis. Only a solitary wall remained standing amid the rubble. The men of the Black Swan sign shop responded with a mural that had long been in the works, a wall of respect saluting heroic strugglers from the past and present. Occasionally, Guts rolled to a stop across from the wall and admired the stern faces of W.E.B. Du Bois, Sojourner Truth, Elijah Muhammad, and others. It wasn't much different closer to Guts's home. The supermarket was still gone. One side of Vandevenner Avenue from Labadee to Greer had retained its bombed outlook, even as folks on the other side did their laundry and bought small items from a corner store. From Taylor to Newstead, Easton Boulevard looked like a mouth with many teeth missing. A notary public, a greasy spoon, a drugstore. Here and there, businesses tottered in relative solitude, miraculous survivors of the fires. You don't know that, Shadrach said. That ain't necessarily the future. We might have a black man in charge. Look at Cleveland. Look at Gary. If it can happen in those cities, it could happen here. No, Cherry said. Downtown's what they want. How long they been serving us at that Woolworths? See how much longer it sticks around now that colored folks can sit at the counter. All my life I wanted to sit at that counter, Shadrach said. I figured white folks' hotcakes just had to be better. Turns out they didn't taste no different. Oliver didn't seem to hear. Mill Creek Valley, Meacham Park, used to be just us in those neighborhoods. Now you might find us cutting grass or scrubbing toilets, but that's it. When they want to move the black man, they just move him. Where'd all them revolutionaries go, Cherry asked. What happened to that liberating nigger? They should have told us about this. Guts knew the answer to that one. You talking about Gabe Patterson? He got married, he said. Shadrach sighed and nodded. It happens to the best of us. 
Better than going to jail, Gut said. That's where Patterson seemed to be heading before Rose Reynolds calmed him down. Hmm, I'm not sure there's a difference, Shadrach said. The Warriors of Freedom, they called themselves, Oliver said. It was a good thing they didn't amount to much. This country has no tolerance for revolutionaries. Look what they did to the Chicago 7. Cherry frowned. Them singing boys? What did they go and do to them? Oliver shook his head. That's the Jackson 5, fool. I knew that, Cherry said. I, I was just testing y'all. Well, the revolutionaries, they had their day in the sun, Oliver continued. We got us our own congressman now, and I bet he'll do a heap more than a bunch of beret-wearing snot noses running around talking about off the pigs. The streets are not where things get done. The real action is in boardrooms and legislatures. You can't be marching against a man. That's out. No, you got to sit down with him like the Sadiddy Negroes do. Sadiddy a word in Baltimore? Yeah, okay. All right. Sometimes people say, well, what is that? It's... it's <laughs> It's really popular where I'm from, so I wasn't sure. Okay. <laughs> Oliver, you ain't never been in nobody's boardroom, Shadrach said, except maybe to empty the trash. Bet you never marched in the streets, neither. Hell, I can't even tell if you ever set foot in that bowling alley that cuts you a check every two weeks. You don't have to listen to me, Oliver said. Ask Guts. He knows what I'm talking about. He rubs elbows with the big wigs. Take a look at the photo of the week. He waved his copy of the Gateway Citizen in Shadrach's direction. Shadrach grabbed it and began to read. Here's local businessman Ananias Good at a meeting of the board of trustees of Harry Truman Boys Club. To his left is Dr. Artensis Noel, the North Side's leading pediatrician. To his right is Virgil Washburn, principal owner of the home team. Oliver crossed his arms in triumph. See what I mean? From the looks of things, Mr. G is tight with Washburn, one of the richest men in the city. He looked at Guts. Hope he don't sell us little folks down the river. Guts shrugged. Not my business. I ain't into politics. And I don't bite the hand that buys my pork chops. Amen, Shadrach said. Speaking of pork, Cherry, we supposed to be sharing this plate. The door swung open and a medium-sized man in his early 30s walked in, wearing a safari vest covered with zippered pockets. Play fair, Cherry said. What's happening? The man strolled straight to the framed portrait of Nichelle Nichols, bowed slightly before it, and crossed himself. Boy, you're going to hell, Shadrach said. Ain't nothing sinful about worshiping a woman, Playfair said with a smile. Especially one with thighs like that, Oliver added. She got to be the finest woman on television, Cherry said. Nope, that would be Gail Fisher, Oliver said. If I was Mannix, I would never leave the office. Uh, Gail Fisher was the first black woman to win an Emmy Award on television for supporting actress. Um, and I remember when I was a boy in my community, that was one of the arguments that took place. Who was finer, Michelle Nichols or Gail Fisher? This, this, was a, this was a serious debate, went on all the time. Cherry curled his lip in disagreement. She too dignified for me. Oliver chuckled as if he knew a secret. Not behind closed doors, I bet. I'm telling you, that chick's a sex machine. He turned to Playfair. What you got in your car today? Anything a brother needs. Cherry laid a polished rib bone on his plate. Got any women? Any women I get, I keep for myself, Playfair replied. Now, tropical fish, that's another story. Shadrach pushed his hat back on his head, exposing his furrowed brow. Tropical what? You heard right. Freshwater fish, cichlids, kissing garamis, neon tetras and such. Perfect for breeding and a reliable source of comfort, serenity, and companionship. Today I charge half of what I'll charge tomorrow. 
Shadrachs, nor only fish worthy of my attention is the kind you fry. Amen to that, Cherry said. Where'd you get them fish from anyway, Oliver asked. Playfair smiled. They fell off a boat, of course. How do you even fit all that merchandise in your trunk, Shadrach asked. How do you keep them fish alive? Packaging and display is a complicated art not easily explained to the average citizen. Shadrach ran his fingers across the brim of his hat. I assure you, Playfair, nothing about me is average. I heard one time you pulled a totem pole out of there, Cherry said. I can neither confirm nor deny that, Playfair said. All I can say is a genuine indigenous carving of considerable length can be manipulated into a seemingly incompatible space. It comes down to a matter of volume, leverage, and surface tension. Guts knew something about that. Once he'd successfully squeezed a 6'4 man into his trunk, but he'd had to break him a bit to make him fit. Damn, Playfair, I'm telling you, said Cherry. You never should have dropped out of Sumner High. You'd be a congressman by now. Playfair shook his head. Oh, high school was just holding me back. Oliver pointed to the lot where Carr was pulling into view. Play, you got a customer. Playfair looked out the window and nodded. Excuse me, gents. This here is what the titans of retail call a big ticket transaction. Back in a bit. Guts watched as Playfair first stepped toward the door, then turned and headed toward him, pulled up a chair, and sat. Let me pull your coat for a minute, Playfair said. Guts nodded. What it is? Just thought you should know that Nifty's smelling himself. Nothing new about that. Right, Playfair agreed, except he's spitting shit about you. Me? Square business. Says he's tired of you playing him for a punk. He say, oh, forget it. Playfair moved as if he was getting ready to leave. Guts touched his arm. No way, Playfair. Don't try to walk off in the middle. Tell me. Playfair sighed. He say you gone soft and everybody knows it. Say you used to be Huey Newton and now you Martin Luther King. Guts winced. Some motherfuckers are shallow. He, he heard Pearl in his head. Lorenzo, you really shouldn't curse so much. What else? Playfair eyed him curiously. Ain't that enough? Yeah, Guts said. I suppose it is. So that's an introduction to the world that, that Guts is kind of operating in and trying to adjust to. Now, uh, a lot of people in the community have known about his change of heart, so he's not as feared as he once was. Uh, and some people are thinking about maybe making him pay for previous aggressions. Um, so here's just a, a short section about uh, Dr. Artensis Noel. The book jumps back and forth in time. Uh, it's mostly in the 70s, but some things uh, take place earlier. So in this passage, we, we have a couple of flashbacks. A month later, the president was shot, plunging the country into shock. Thanksgiving hardly felt like a holiday at all. Not even Ananias Good's turkey giveaway, complete with fanfare and performances by local talent he personally handpicked, could dispel the aura of gloom. Experience had taught Northsiders that whatever misfortune fell on the country at large would land on them with considerably more weight. They had hardly been surprised when earlier that year, Birmingham police turned fire hoses on black children. That kind of barbarity simply served as continuing evidence in a long and endless trial. But there was something very disturbing about a white man whose wealth and staggering power only amplified his whiteness shot down in the street like a common Negro. The space age, they feared, would tumble to earth before they even had a chance to lift off. Like any engaged citizen, Artensis felt bad for the country. 
but her sadness inevitably reverted to its usual, distinctly personal shape. Having lost her appetite, she decided to forego lunch in favor of an extended session with Life magazine and other periodicals that covered the Kennedy assassination and its aftermath. Sitting at her desk piled high with files, she fixated on photos of the First Lady. In unsettling detail, they showed Mrs. Kennedy crazy with panic as she scrambled across the trunk of the limousine, entering the ambulance carrying her husband's body from the hospital to the airport, and kneeling at his flower-covered grave with a herd of officials and relatives waiting at a respectful distance behind her. What, Artensis wondered, would it feel like to experience such a soul-shattering loss? She'd known heartbreak a time or two, but having pursued her calling with missionary focus, she had never entertained the possibility of falling so deeply in love that she couldn't climb out. In keeping with this philosophy, she felt she'd managed to confine her affair with good to purely physical concerns, simply a matter of two grown people taking care of each other's needs. Or had it been more than that? Artensis refused to pause long enough to give herself a chance to reflect. The one thing she was certain of was the sensation his absence created. Sighing, she conceded to calling it what it was. Pain. Okay, i got like two more sections. Um, this section takes place, it's based on an annual event that used to take place in St. Louis called Afro Day in the Park, in which... Um, and if I haven't made it clear, I should have pointed out that, you know, it's an intensely segregated city. Historically, the south side is all white. The north side is all black. So this particular event um, takes place on the north side. Hello, north side, the man in the red vest bellowed. Welcome to Afro Day in the Park. The quiet corner of Fairgrounds Park where Guts Tolliver spent his favorite mornings had been transformed into a carnival. Banners hung the previous month by the men of the Black Swan, draped the gates at Kasuth and Fair Avenues. A tilt-a-whirl, a Ferris wheel, and a carousel surrounded the Abram Higgins Memorial Garden. Nearby, the Harry Truman's Boys Club sponsored a dunking booth. An elaborate sprinkler set, vast and tentacled, sent prismatic spray in the air. Families relaxed on picnic blankets and enjoyed the shade beneath beach umbrellas along the path on which Crusher Boudreaux usually ran his miles. Crusher stood a few years off the path, in his standard workout gear, but he wasn't exercising. He'd been drafted to oversee the swing the hammer, ring the bell game. On the stone bridge, Reuben Jones and Lucius Monday sat behind easels, offering instant portraits and caricatures for $3 each. At softball diamond number one, a bandstand had been erected in the shallow outfield. The man in the red vest presided there as master of ceremonies, strolling a stage festooned with his radio station's call letters. Teenagers gathered at the foot of the stage to mingle and flirt. From her booth between Stormy Monday's pie stand and the autograph kiosk manned by Rip Crenshaw and the home team's fleet center fielder, Artensis offered free blood pressure screenings and lead poisoning tests. Charlotte was supposed to assist her, but hadn't showed up yet. It was just about noon. I should point out that Dr. Artensis Noel, one of her issues is three ghostly women keep appearing wherever she is. She sees these three women um, and no one else appears to see them. The last of the lingering morning mist, mist had all but burned away, leaving behind a shimmering curtain of heat. Artensis watched as on the far side of the pond, the curtain parted and the three women stepped through. Barefoot, they strolled to the edge of the concrete dock jutting into the water. 
Two of them shielded their brows with their hands. The other twirled a parasol. Fairgoers moved around them as if they weren't there. Oblivious to the trio, a fisherwoman, her hat pulled down low over her eyes, set out a metal lawn chair and fishing gear on the dock. The women apparently didn't mind or notice, but they did seem to be aware of Artensis. They were staring right at her. The MC introduced the first of the afternoon's bands, a local quartet of siblings whose modest repertoire was mostly limited to Jackson 5 covers. Their opening salvo of I Want You Back sounded like a cross between a whistling tea kettle and faulty brakes. Lord Jesus, Irene Monday exclaimed. She fanned herself with a carry-out menu from her restaurant while leaning on the counter of her booth. Her vantage point gave her a clear view of her husband at his easel nearly a hundred yards away. Bless their hearts, but those children should think of taking up something other than singing. Yes, Artensis agreed, like mime, perhaps. It's going to get better, though, Irene said. I hear Rose Patterson might sing a little later. If she's up to it, her belly's so big she's about to burst. Artensis had met Rose only recently. She and Gabe were expecting their first child any day. Thinking ahead, the couple had already enlisted her services. I've heard she has a wonderful voice, Artensis said. Like an angel, sweet as sugar for all she's been through. Her first husband had the devil in him. That's no good, Artensa said. You telling me? I've been through it too. Thought I'd lose my mind before Lucius came along and swept me off my feet. Irene smiled. Some folks, though, are just blessed. Like you, I suppose. Smart and successful as you are, I bet you've made it through life with hardly a scratch. Artensis forced herself to turn toward the pond, determined not to let the three women stare her down. They were gone. Near where they had stood, the fisherwoman bent to pick up something lying on the dock. The parasol, Artensis thought, but it was a fishing pole. The heat curtain had evaporated as if it had never been there. Artensis watched as the woman attached bait to her line. I've had my share of scratches, she said. If pressed, she might have found a way to change the subject, or she might have told Irene that her first scratch was more like a kick in the gut. That's what it had felt like when she found her mother face down in the dirt. It was 1935. Coming down the road and seeing Sadie Noel spread eagled on the ground, Artensis had the impression that her mother had fallen from a great height. Blades of grass had bent sharply away from the outline of her still form, as if shuddering at the impact of her landing. Neighbor women knelt near her and made comforting noises, but Sadie remained where she lay until four men pulled her to her feet. Then she let loose with a sound that Artensis had never completely forgotten. Half wail and half roar, it was one of the last audible utterances to rise from her mother's throat. Years later, while Artensis stood at the bedside of dying children, when she had to tell the parents that time was running out, she would occasionally recall Sadie's furious bawling. Sometimes the stricken parents would howl in similarly desperate fashion, and Artensis would find herself hurtling backward through time. Her mother had hit the ground with a head full of thick, dark, shiny hair. Minutes later, with clods of dirt in her eyebrows and thick dust coating her face, she tottered beneath a thatch of stringy white strands. Artensis grabbed her mother's sleeve. What's wrong, Mama, she asked. What happened? Her mother stared right through her, shaking her head. She looked blind. There had been a dispute between Luther and Mooney Hicks, a white man. Hicks had asked Luther about two cows that had turned up missing. 
When Luther said he knew nothing about it, Hicks suggested it would be a good idea for Luther to turn over, turn over a couple of his own cows to keep things simple and peaceful-like. When Luther declined as respectfully as he could, Mooney Hicks shot him in the back. Sadie had been preparing to return a basket of clean laundry to Miss Agnes, a mean-spirited white woman who insisted that only Sadie knew how to wash her drawers just right. When the news reached Sadie, she tossed the basket and toppled straight over. She remained there, still as a stone, while sheets, pillowcases, and women's underthings slowly floated down like snow. The next day, Artensis collected the laundry that her mother had spilled. She washed it in a big iron pot in the backyard, stirring it in boiling water and washing it with homemade soap before rinsing it all and hanging each item on the line to dry. These were tasks she knew well. Her mother had put her to work on small pieces in a tub at the age of six, shortly after she learned to read. She had begun feeding and weeding at age four. By the time she was 15, there was little she couldn't do around a farm. By 15, she was also certain that she despised everything about agriculture. With her father's blessing, she had begun to dream of a different destiny. His brutal erasure hastened her plans. Miss Agnes demanded to know why the washing was late, even though she already knew the answer. Word of Luther's death had spread quickly. My daddy got killed, Artensis said standing attentively on the back porch while Miss Agnes frowned at her from the doorway. She held the heavy basket and waited for permission to set it down or bring it in. A shame, Miss Agnes said. Niggers do get into scrapes. Them juke joints ain't nothing but sin and depravity. I thought Luther knew better. It was a white man done it, Artensa said, faster than she wanted to. Miss Agnes leaned down, grabbed her by the chin, and pulled her close. You listen to me. For as long as you live, there's three things you should never do. Never lie, never cheat, never steal, advised the woman who had neglected to pay Sadie for the past four weeks. God sees everything you do, and he knows that as soon as you go wrong, you can count on him punishing you for it, just like he punished your daddy. Artensis was pretty sure some kind of force lurked in the world, a presence she couldn't explain and often preferred to ignore. It wasn't the loving God her mother would mumble to with increasing fervor each night, a pale, patient old man who would one day reward Sadie's lifelong virtue by raising up Luther like Lazarus and sending him back to her waiting arms. Far from that. Artensis suspected the force was a hunger, as old as the universe, a phenomenon that was neither good nor evil, but nonetheless fed on human suffering. She had no patience for talk of angels and saviors. But she knew the hunger was real. Okay, one last uh, section. This is a, a little tiny bit about uh, Ananias Good, who is sort of the vector through which all of these characters' lives pass. And uh, to set it up, he has acquired a number of illegitimate businesses and a number of legit businesses as well. So he's pretty wealthy uh, for a black man of this era. And one of his properties is a country retreat. It's a farmhouse where he goes on weekends to decompress. But, of course, he has to take his men with him uh, for protection. When Good had his country retreat, before the Continental plunged into the lake and ended his flirtation with feudal pursuits, his men sometimes played baseball in a neighboring field. 
He'd join in occasionally, his suit jacket left behind in the farmhouse, shirt sleeves rolled up to the elbows, suspenders straining against the bulk of his chest. His men knew better than to pitch him high and tight or risk beaning him with a curve. They knew to lob something soft toward the plate and wait for him to wallop it past the deepest man, to greet his home run with requisite cheers and the gravest respect, to shout encouragement as he took his gentlemanly jaunt around the bases, Josh Gibson in custom boots, stogie clenched between those powerful teeth. White men loved baseball, he'd tell his men, after the country breeze cooled their sweat and they cracked open beers under a canopy of maples and oaks. With its fenced-in frontiers and diamonds carved out of cornfields, baseball was the American dream played out under the lights. You could start out in the batter's box with hope and a stick, steal your way across the heartland in search of a big score, and end up a winner by the time you got home. But white men would soon hate it, he continued. They'd soon hate it because in places like Kansas City and Indianapolis and Oakland and Birmingham, black men had grabbed hold of the national pastime with their black hands and dragged their jazzy flair from Jim Crow sandlots to Ebbets Field and the polo grounds. They circled under pop flies with deceptive ease and turned double plays like wizards of the air. Jackie Robinson was only the beginning. It was a new game now. Soon, only the ball would be white. They'd hate it because they made the game and we're remaking it. They made the country from black sweat, Indian blood, and grand theft. If we can remake their game, we can damn sure remake the country. Three beers in and good would be ballistic, proclaiming his expertise on the art of making and remaking. Just look at me, he'd declare. I'm one self-made motherfucker. Hadn't he come from liberty with little more than the lint in his pocket and a talent for inflicting pain? His men, stretched out in the grass and tipsy themselves, eyed one another nervously, lest Good's temper take a fearful turn. If he kept it aimed at white folks, they were safe. If he aimed it inward, they were safe. Sometimes he went down to the lake and raged at his own reflection. They call baseball the national pastime, he ranted, and they love it, sure enough. But the real national pastime is crushing niggas. So crush or be crushed, goddamn. He might be from Mississippi, but his mama didn't raise no fools, he'd say. He knew the rules, he'd say. And if he ever struck out, he'd go down swinging. Thank you. So that's a little little taste of it. I'm happy to entertain comments or questions if anybody has any feedback. Where were you raised at Baltimore? St. Louis. So yeah, so it's sort of a fictionalized or uh, as as Lester said, loosely interpreted uh St. Louis. The Yeah. And and St. Louis always builds itself as the gateway to the west when in fact it's the gateway to the south. Uh, cult- culturally, and in negative ways and positive ways. I mean, what? It's a border state, though, technically. Uh, yeah, it's a border state, uh, civil war between the North and the South, and therefore a slave state. Uh, so, uh, Market Street, for example, in St. Louis is called Market Street because that's, that's where the slave market was, that's where the slave pens were. Uh, so, that, that heritage is, is there. Uh, the Dred Scott decision was down the street from Market Street in 1857. So that heritage 
uh, is there. But one of the positive aspects of um, being a border state is really an African-American community. Um, quite a few of the African-Americans in, in, in St. Louis have direct bloodlines to Mississippi because they were, they were escaping Mississippi, essentially, moving north, and for some reason stopped and settled in St. Louis. Like, my, my wife's mother is from Mississippi, my grandparents from Mississippi. So if you scratch a black St. Louis and you will find a black Mississippian underneath. Uh, and so, there, there's, so a lot of that cultural resonance is there, and a lot of that's positive. I mean, it's really what made the community flourish, uh, those connections and those cultural strands. But the negative side of that is, is the white southern sort of confederate flavor um, and philosophy that permeates a, a lot of the, the city and, and in, in fact has never never gone away. Uh, it's still a rigidly segregated community, both culturally and residentially. Could you discuss uh, why the title Only the Strong? Sure. Um, you couldn't tell from the selections I, I read today, but it, there's a heavy uh, musical aspect to the book. Uh, there's a lot of reference and discussion of the, the R&B music that was popular at that time. Uh, there were, in this particular university, three neighborhood black-owned independent record stores, and they all had loudspeakers mounted uh, outside the store. So you could walk through the main drag of the black community and just hear music all the time, beautiful music. And one of the popular songs during that era was Only the Strong Survived by Jerry Butler. So, so there's references to that in the book. And, and also because it, it alludes to these people. I mean, they've, 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 they've gone through uh, a number of challenges but continue to survive. Jabari, I've yeah. read one, your last read part of your reading there. Sure. Yeah. Um, I want you to talk seriously about some of your thoughts about that, but also given the baseball part you just read, um, soon after our uprising in Baltimore, we had a baseball game played in an empty stadium. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the national pastime and yeah. baseball or, or fashion news. Yeah, I think baseball, baseball is just an apt metaphor, I think, for a lot of the struggles that have taken place place uh, in, in the United States and you know I never named the St. Louis Cardinals any I just call them the home team um, but so when I when I was growing up I was a huge baseball fan like immediately I took to it when I was like six years old and uh, you know I always wanted to go see the Cardinals and my father was really reluctant to take me he didn't take me till I was seven because uh, I wasn't old enough to understand but St. Louis was the southernmost team in the major leagues for a very long time. And it was one of the places where Jackie Robinson and his wife were repeatedly abused and humiliated. Um, and so black men of his generation, you know, they were much more interested in the Dodgers because that's where Jackie Robinson had brought I mean, he just, he had no use for the Cardinals. And as a kid, I couldn't understand that, you know? So, um, and then last year they did a, a report on diversity in baseball and St. Louis was one of the three major league teams that had not one single African-American player. Uh, and when this takes place, the heart of the team is African American. You know, all the best players are African American. So it's a it's a it's a, it's a different era. Uh, so I, I did want to kind of like play with that idea um, and kind of use it as a, as a metaphor for a lot of things that happen racially uh, in the country. The book that precedes this begins with the police killing of an unarmed black man in in 1967, I think. Um, 
So one of the things I, I tell interviewers is you could set a book like this in any time period and begin it with the police killing of an unarmed black man. Um, it's always relevant. You know, so I get, these, I get well-meaning questions like, well, gee, this is a timely book. You know, uh, you're, you're kind of explaining how Ferguson became Ferguson. It's like it's not like I sat down and said, oh, man, Mike Brown got shot. Let me write a book about that, you know, because it's set, it set decades before that. But every decade had no shortage of Mike Browns, uh, which is which is you know part of the point um, in St. Louis and Baltimore and elsewhere. And, you know, this is totally abstract and non-scientific. But when I moved to Baltimore, one of the things I said to my wife was, one of the things I really don't like about Baltimore is it reminds me so much of St. Louis. And it's not even something you can put your finger on. You know, it's like it's something in the air, you know. Uh, so uh, when a Mike Brown or a Freddie Gray is brought down, you know, it, sometimes the larger world seems to react with uh, shock or disgust or astonishment. But the people who have lived in those communities, you know, they might, they might react with completely justified anger, uh, but seldom surprise. You know, it's, it's, it's never a surprise. It's sort of, a, I mean, it is very much the, the American tradition. Uh, in my book, Not Guilty, I, I quote a black man from uh, the 1800s. says, you know, black men were always in season. You know, it's hunting season. You don't need a permit. Um, and so that, that always kind of stuck with me. We are always in season. Uh, uh, yeah. And so that, so Ananias Good kind of reflects that when he's ranting about baseball. Yeah, they say baseballs, but, you know, it's really crushing us. And, and his response to that is crush back. You know, so he's obviously not an advocate of prayerful, um, you know, prayer circles. That, that, that's not his thing. And I don't mean to dismiss people uh, who endorse that. You know, I think Lerone Bennett said uh, it's not important that all black people do the same thing. It's more important that all black people do something. So, so we can attack this problem from all different ways. But the other thing I'm looking at in all of my books, I hope, is the idea of love as a form of resistance. Because, you know, love was not only discouraged, it was, you know, it was, it was forbidden, essentially, among black people by law and by violence. And it, it seems like the people who, who built the white supremacist system uh, that the United States thrives on, it seems like they understood that really early. Uh, we have to make sure that black people don't love each other and we have to do whatever we can to put those those boundaries in place. So I, so I am kind of looking at it from from that. Well, what about people who choose to love despite all of those circumstances? What what can come about as a result of that? And, and I'm also interested in black intimate relationships, you know, between men and women in particular. Um, it's something I try to explore in the fiction, something I like to, to see more of, uh, especially written by African-American men, right? So, so, I mean, so the story revolves around three couples, you know, and, they, and I won't spoil it, but they don't all have a happy outcome, but they're, they're all genuine relationships. Uh, and I wanted to spend some time with that, with the, the give and take and the high and low and, and, and all of that. Because uh, as a reader, that's something I want to see, you know? Yes, sir. Okay. It's funny with the copy editors. The copy editors were like, well, how should we spell this? We looked at three different, we found three different spellings. I can't remember which one we settled on, you know, but yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I just heard it all the time. Well, 
My mother's not here to defend herself. She's in St. Louis. But I heard it from my mother all the time. She was constantly identifying who the Sadiddy people were. So it was like an early word in my vocabulary. <laughs> Are you not the only one who mentioned that uh, Volvo was like St. Louis? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so what's the comparison? I mean, that's what I wanted to know. Well, yeah, I mean, like I say, that's abstract. That's, that's unscientific, right? I'm not basing that on research. That's, that's just my impression. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's really hard to describe, but it's like... Is it the schools, the, well, the segregation of the city? Um, the relationship between the city and the surrounding county. I mean, Baltimore and St. Louis, I think, are the two only major cities that kind of exist apart from the surround. You know, because St. Louis City is not a part of St. Louis County, for example. Uh, but, but I'm not even talking about that. I mean, I think those are good points. The institutional similarities. For me, it's almost a psychological thing. You know, it's, just, it's like uh, when I would catch the bus... In Baltimore, uh, and this is something Lester and I have in common. We're, we're both champions of public transportation. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've, I've been working. For, I've, I'm a guy. I'm a guy who's never driven to his job. I've always caught the bus or the train or whatever. Right. So. Uh, say it again. Uh, now I, I teach in Boston. I live in Boston. Oh, Boston. Yeah. Let's not talk about it. You only make me sad. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so but I, that's where I first noticed it, like standing on the corner waiting for the bus, you know, and standing with, with other black men. And it wasn't a positive thing. I, I mean, I, I want to be clear. It's almost like uh, a defeatism. It's like a cloud, you know. We, we, we felt like we were, it's like we were taking an uphill walk, you know, and, and that's how I always felt in St. Louis. I always felt like I was walking uphill. And a lot of that's psychological. I can't say it's because of an institute. It's just something I felt, you know. And I remember feeling that early on uh, in Baltimore and saying that to my this reminds me a lot of St. Louis. And that isn't a good thing, you know. I mean, of course, you know, Baltimore has its strengths because, because of, you know, some of the strengths I talk about that are in St. Louis that are within the community, uh, to be sure. But, uh, but there, there is this other thing, you know. And maybe it's in other cities that I haven't lived in. But based on my experience, you know, it felt very similar. I first went to a game in 1970. Yes. So Gibson was there. Gibson was there. What did uh, your father think about him? Oh, he loved him. Okay. He loved him. I mean, he loved the players. You know what I mean? But it's like he couldn't bring himself to set foot in the stadium. You know, he talked about when uh, when Jackie Robinson played there. You know, it made his wife cry. She, she, they didn't. The team. The teams didn't protect her. The statement that it sat or somewhere where people could really say things to her. They let a black cat loose from the dugout onto the field. And Tom Poston, who was the first black baseball player for the Cardinals, he, he borrowed a teammate's bat. He hit a home run with it. When he got back to the dugout, the teammate took the bat and broke it in half. You know, it's like, I can't even touch that bat anymore. Even though, he, you know, so, so my father's, I'm trying to think, I, my father's 86 years old. So he remembers all of that, like, like yes, he remembers that more than he can remember, you know, his middle name. And, the, and that stuff really, really stuck, I think. You said your grandfather was involved with numbers? Yeah. Uh, how did that affect you? I mean, did it benefit your life in any way? Oh, they, well, it probably benefited my life in every way. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, because my, my grandfather lived a solidly middle class life. Um, and, you know, by the time I was coming along, he had done like a lot of people do. He had begun to legitimize. So he had a lot of legitimate business enterprises. 
in the neighborhood with his name on him. Like when I was in St. Louis, I took a picture of Harris Taxi Cab. His last name was Harris. He founded Harris Taxi Cab, which is the first black, uh, black-owned taxi company in St. Louis that still exists. Um, so, you know, he did immediately start, and I talk about that in the book. This guy does the same thing. Let me acquire this. Let me, you know, he had a Phillips 66 gas station near our house. He had all these other things. Um, so by the time I come along, a lot of the, you know, that criminal aspect of it, I was not um, privy to. You know, he ran, he still ran after hours gambling when I was a kid, but of course I never saw that. Uh, but the Guts Tolliver character, uh, the leg breaker in, in the book is, is based on a man I was fascinated with as a boy who was never less than two feet from my grandfather, wherever my grandfather went. And he, was, he was a mountain of a man. And I noticed even as a child, he had like a zone of protection around him. You know, it's like just, you know, brothers didn't get up in his face. It just didn't happen, right? And whichever direction my grandfather turned, he turned in that direction, you know? So I, I never had a conversation with him in my life. Right, so I'm, I'm kind of imagining uh, how he might be. He was very soft-spoken. Um, you know, I guess he didn't have to say much. Uh, but I, but I was fascinated. You know, as a little kid, you know, just, you know I, I always, I've written often about taking my cues about masculinity from the various examples of black masculinity that were in my community, not just in my house, but just all around. And he was one of those guys. You know, there were guys who strutted and swaggered and who were tough. But he was a guy who obviously was tough, but neither neither strutted nor swaggered. You know, he was just. Quiet and kind of like always doing, you know, he's like, he's like those Secret Service guys who are always kind of doing this, you know. He was always doing that. That was his job. And he drove. He drove my grandfather everywhere. So. There's a minor, minor character in the book uh-huh. named Gladys. Yes. Who's, um, well, I'm not going to spoil it for the readers. She's not really important to the story, but she's got this quirk about her. Yes. And I was wondering how you came, you know, whether that quirk was something... You know, whether you knew somebody like that or, or whether it's just you thought you'd add it. Uh, yeah, I knew people like that. Uh, it was hard. It, uh, I don't think it spoils the book too much. Yeah, yeah. but Gladys um, lives in the community as an attractive woman, but Gladys was born a man, right? So she's a minor character in the book. Um, but there's an exchange when, when Guts, the tough guy, f- finds out yeah, he didn't know for some reason. And so, but his his friend had, had like tried to talk to Gladys in a nightclub or something. And, and so Gladys is a man. Well, and he says, well, why didn't you, why didn't you beat her up? Why didn't you, why didn't you beat him up? Why didn't you crush me? And, and he says, well, I didn't have any beef with her. Right. And he says, and besides, I thought everybody knew, you know? So, so there were people in the community, um, you know, well ahead of, um, developments in, in, in the trans movement, et cetera. Um, who, who lived that kind of life. And, and, you know, for all the talk of black people being intensely homophobic and intensely averse to anyone who's different from them, these people were tolerated. They weren't celebrated, but they, were absolute, they, they absolutely walked down the street safely every day, you know. And I became aware of them because um, my mother was an Avon lady. Uh, you, you remember Avon lady used to sell the cosmetics. It used to be door-to-door back then, right? And, and one of her clients was, was a... A man, you know, he just bought all the, the lipstick and nail polish, And I didn't understand it at the time. And she, you know, she basically said, don't worry about it. You know, you'll, you'll get it one day, you know. But, but the adults got it. And no one was chasing this guy down the street, you know. So, so I just decided to, you know, just to add a layer of complexity to the story. So with this, book, this particular book here, what do you want your readers to gain from this book? 
uh, you know, I, primarily I want them to be entertained. I mean, that's what I try to do in fiction. I just want to tell an interesting yarn. And if, so and, this whole yeah. difference for me, well, from what I, when I was listening to you, it sounded like a lot of it was true from with the battle of the blacks and the whites and the segregation. Yeah. Um, of a, so the whole, this whole book is uh, strictly fiction? Yeah, it's made up. It's made. It's definitely. I made it all up. Um, and the reason why it's not called St. Louis, the reason why it's called Gateway City, because mm. that enabled me to be freer about making stuff. Right. I didn't want people to stand up in the audience and say, "Well, you know, I'm from St. Louis, and those two streets, streets never intersected, right?" So I want to be able to say, "Yeah, you're right. I kind of, kind of inspired by St. Louis, but I, I created situations that I wanted to work uh, for the purpose of, of the story, you know. And also, it's just, you know, there, there are novels set in St. Louis, like." Um, Jonathan Franzen's one of the leading novelists in America, for some reason, and uh, <laughs> and and at least a couple of these take take place in a fictionalized version of St. Louis, but it's not a St. Louis I'm remotely familiar with because there are no people of color. Right. Right. So how do you come about using St. Louis, Baltimore? How do you come up with this whole fiction thing? I mean, like you read it from a novel book. Well, I, I have read a lot of books. Uh, well, I don't know if there are a lot of books, but there are certain writers who, who write a lot about life in the inner city. But when I was in my 20s and I, was, I hadn't decided yet what I was going to write about, uh, I met John Edgar Wiseman, who's a great black writer. He's in his 70s now. Uh, he focused on the Homewood neighborhood in Pittsburgh, all black neighborhood. He told story after story, fascinating stuff. And I met him as a young man at a black writers' conference, and I was really starstruck. So I read his stuff, you know, and I was like, I can't believe I'm meeting John Edgar Wise. And he was polite. I don't, I don't expect that he remembered because there's a lot of young men lining up to, to meet him, right? But, you know, he did that, oh, young man, where are you from? That kind of thing. I said, I'm from North St. Louis, right? And, and he said, uh, there are lots of stories there. Someone should tell them, you know. Said, yeah, yes, sir, thank you. Thank, cool. thank, thank you for meeting me. But that planted the idea in my head. That's when I got the idea because I was looking around. What can I write about? What can I make up? What can I invent? And I realized I grew up in a community that was just full of storytellers. Everybody, you know, you know the places, the barbershop, you know, church, all these different people just spinning yarns, just amazing inventive tales. And, you know, I meet black people all the time. And, yeah, I think I might write a book, but I don't have any stories. You know, it's like black people are, you know, if wealth was measured by stories, right? So I, so I, just, I just wrote some of them down. So sometimes they're inspired by actual events or things that I heard. Other times they're just completely made up. I just put the characters in a situation and imagine what would happen. Uh, one of the major characters in the book is a uh, black pediatrician. Um, and so when I was a kid, there were only two black women pediatricians in St. Louis. Either you were a patient in either one or the other. And they were, they were frequently interviewed. So there are a lot of oral histories of those two women. And one of them talked about uh, the white doctors had what they call black days. A black day was a day when you could bring a black child to a white doctor. And, and, wow. and they would keep their white patients home so that they wouldn't be contaminated. This is the 70s? Uh, this is the 60s. Oh, okay, yeah. so, so one of the black doctors, I was, I was her patient, you know, from birth to like 18 or whatever. She had signs in her office that said, every day is black day. And you know, it's like, what does that mean? You know, and then you read an interview with her, and she said she, when she got her own practice, she wanted to make it clear, every day is black day. We're not doing that anymore. You know, if your, kid gets, if, you, if, you, if your kid got sick on Tuesday and black day was Friday, what were you supposed to do for three days, right? You know, but that's what people had to put up with. So she made it clear, every day, every day is black day. You bring your child to me anytime. I will, I will be here. Is that true or false? 
Now that's a true story, but I made it part of the book. I, I have my character do the same thing, but I know that that's based on actual stuff. Yeah. Uh, yes, do you have any interest? Sorry. That's all right. Yeah. I was wondering, has anybody approached you about making this into a movie on a small screen or a big screen? Um, readers approach me all the time, but people who actually make movies know. <laughs> 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 hasn't, hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, do you have any interest in playwriting? Yes. Yeah, I have written plays. Yeah, I have written plays. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I hope, because I'm really interested in dialogue, you know, because uh, yeah, August Wilson, you know, the dialogue's just amazing. But if you're someplace and there's like three black men, I really like older black men. So if they're like 70, there's like three of them and they're sitting around. If you secretly taped the whole thing and went home and typed it up, right. you would have a Tony Award winner. You, you wouldn't have to change anything. Yeah, I mean, you go on a bus ride. On a bus ride. Oh, it's amazing. No, you could. You really could. I mean, I mean, I mean it's amazing. I mean, the story, storytelling, and, and I have a scene set in a, in a, a woman's, uh, women's beauty salon. Same thing's going on. You know, it's just like, you tell Shakespeare has nothing on them. Nothing, nothing at all. Oh. Do you have any non-fictional uh, books that you ever wrote? Yeah, I've written a few. Um, I wrote one on the N-word, uh, cultural history of the N-word. I wrote one on the first Obama campaign. And I edited a book of essays by a black man about law and justice called Not Guilty. Law and justice? Law and justice. That's a pretty good book to read. I hope so. <laughs> I'm writing it down. They're all on display downstairs on the baby grand. Oh, oh. Okay. Oh. I gotta get a picture of that. They're on display in, on the baby grand piano downstairs. Long and yes? Well, somebody might get it before I get it. <laughs> well, you can't check it out tonight anyway. <laughs> Don't. I was gonna ask you about uh, your name, it's so kinetic and full of electricity. So, do you already have the name that just come to you like in a dream? Uh, what, what, oh, like which name? The names of some of your characters. Oh! Um, uh, it's, a, it's a combination. Like, uh, I have a character named, named Crusher Goudreau. He's based on a guy, and my neighbor's last name was Bowdry. So I just changed it to Goudreau. He was an ex-boxer. The story went that he had been a contender, but he had taken a shot in the throat. And it kind of like, so he talked like that. And he wore a towel like a scarf, and he was always working out, you know. And he's, he, on one level, kind of a scary-looking guy, but on, on, on another level, you know, really kind of children. You know, it's, it's like somebody was, if a bully was messing with you in the park, he'd come right over and went in that, you know. So, sometimes the names come that way. Dr. Artensis Noel, Artensis is a bizarre, unusual name. Uh, my niece is named Artensis. She's named after her grandmother, who's named Artensis, on the other side, right, on her mom's side. And I was just like, what, that's a weird name. But, but I like it. Hmm? I don't know what it means. I had never seen it before. But, yeah, so I said, I'm, I'm going to run with that. So. Uh, are your novels at any point big on action scenes? Yeah. Uh, uh, any, any question, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, particularly where, where Guts is concerned, that particular character, right. because he leads a very violent lifestyle. And he's in my earlier book, too. The reference to him folding a tall man into his trunk, yeah. <laughs> that happens in A Taste of Honey in my earlier book. He, fold, he fold, folds him up. And, that's, and that particular incident is based on a real story of when my, my mom was in high school and uh, it was an adult man who hung around and harassed the teenage girls. And he, he spoke uh, improperly to my mother. And her brother stepped to the guy and just got pounded. Right? So then her brother gets home, and my grandfather says, you know, what happened? And, and you know, my uncle told him. 
So my, my grandfather, his assistant, went and got this guy. And there's a state line. East St. Louis is in Illinois. North St. Louis is in Missouri. He drove him across the state line. And uh, you know, my grandfather would tell me this story when I was a kid. And my grandfather had a real thick Mississippi accent and never got rid of And we took him over there and uh, told him, you know, I'm going to let you live. But you can never cross this line again. And he told me, he said, of course, the only way he could cross it would be to crawl, because he can't walk no more. <laughs> 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 so I, I stole that story. <laughs> so I think it's time to sign okay. some books. Thank you. Thank you.